Erin Schrody, how are you? I'm well. How are you, my friend? I'm great. So where are you today? <laughs> I'm sitting here in my apartment in San Juan, Puerto Rico. San Juan, Puerto Rico. So, I, you know, there's a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about today. But the obvious question is, what are you doing in Puerto Rico? It's a good question. It's one I've gotten a lot over the past almost 11 months since I've been here. Um, I got a text from a dear friend of mine, a chef by the name of Jose Andres, who came down to Puerto Rico to start cooking right after Hurricane Maria hit the island. And he had dreams of setting up kitchens across this island and needed someone to run it and tapped me. I reluctantly got on a plane. I thought I'd be here four or five days. Um, that afternoon, he introduced me as his COO to the governor's staff, said we were gonna make 100,000 meals a day. And I said, yes, chef and got to be a part of truly one of the most incredible movements of my life. I'm very proudly the only gringa in my operation and working with an all Puerto Rican team. And we've opened 26 kitchens across this island to serve over 3.7 million meals to the most vulnerable populations, peaking at 150,000 a day when that was what was required right after the hurricane. Feeding 150,000 people a day. Yeah, I, I wouldn't believe it if I didn't do it. Um, yeah. And it's one of those experiences where you just make it up, but you cannot replicate something that doesn't exist and you cannot scale something you haven't done. So we started literally, Jose, with one pot of Sancocho, with one wow. kitchen, wow. and on we went. Incredible. So, you know, Aaron, this the whole context of this conversation is around millennial leaders doing big things and you you are a millennial leader you're doing big things you're up to you're up to huge things in the world feeding 150,000 people a day in a place that's been decimated by a hurricane that's just the next thing on your list and i i kind of want to go back i want to do your history but you are the embodiment of a lot of the things that we speak about in the new book in the new documentary you're in the documentary by the way the revolution generation i'm excited to see it yeah well it's coming coming soon September, it's going to colleges. So, you know, part of the reason why I wanted to reconnect with you, you're on the ground, you're doing the work, uh, but your history spans a much broader set of things that you've done. Now, it's sometimes inappropriate to ask people how old they are, but I think for this interview, we need to know, how old are you? I am 27 years old. Okay, 27 years old. That's very millennial and very young. Now let's go back in time, Aaron. What was the first big sort of social action thing that you did as a young person? I'll start in a place that I, I don't usually talk about because it's something that informed who I am, um, but not that I launched, which was Coastal Cleanup Day in California. Coastal I'm, Cleanup Day, okay. It's the third Saturday of September, so it's coming up. Um, and it's one of the largest volunteer annual activities in the world. Okay. Um, I am who I am because I'm wh where I'm raised. And I'm very proudly from the North Bay, from the San Francisco Bay Area, along the most beautiful coastline in the world. And cleaning up our coasts and our shores, stewarding our planet, was something that was instilled in me from, actually, when my mom was pregnant with me, she read a book called Diet for a Poison Planet. And it completely shifted the entire way in which I was raised, literally the physical home that I grew up in, but also with that mindset. Um, and in 2002, I'd say my, my aha moment, um, there was a study that came out 
that my hometown of Marin County had the highest breast, prostate, and melanoma cancer rates on earth. And no one knew why. And in one of the most affluent counties there was, they said there wasn't enough money to do the testing. And that didn't sit right with my mom. And I saw my role model, my best friend, turn into a grassroots activist literally overnight. And she began organizing in our living room to canvas the county and to go door to door and ask people a very simple question. Why? Why were cancer rates off the charts? Um, nothing correlated. It wasn't water. It wasn't demographics. And I started to hear about climate change back 13 years ago. Um, it felt very far away. I couldn't put back together melting polar ice caps. And I didn't own a house. I still don't own a house. I didn't own a car. I still don't own a car. But that was totally out of my frame of reference. And then a study came out linking the ingredients in personal care products to cancer. Mm. And um, at that moment, Britney Spears was a spokesperson for Herbal Essence's shampoo. And I had Maybelline Full and Soft next to my jelly rolls in my pen case in middle school. And that was tangible. That was relevant to my life and a place where I felt I could take action. Um, yet simultaneously felt outraged. What do you mean no one's looking out for our health and well-being? What do you mean there's no oversight? But that was very quickly followed up by a, what can we do? And that was in January of 2005. That was the genesis of the first meeting, what we first called Teens for Safe Cosmetics that grew into Teens Turning Green, which is now a nonprofit that's 13 and a half years old, which blows my mind that I'm the proud co-founder of. Wow. And so you were, let's go back, you're 27. That was, two, that was wow, that math is, uh, that was a while back. So you were really young, right? I was. I was a little ragtag eighth grader getting together with a bunch of middle school and high school students in my neck of the woods. Mm -hmm. And and so as as somebody who was organizing from eighth grade onward, A, were you a fish out of water? <laughs> B, was that unusual? Uh, and if it was, have has the dynamic changes? You know, over time, has the dynamic changed? Do you see now more and more members of your generation waking up? Are you still an outlier? Do you see where I'm going with these questions? Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. Yes, at that moment, a 13-year-old delving into the world of environmental education advocacy did stand out. And I think that's one of the reasons that we also were able to capture attention and momentum. It was a raw, truthful voice that wasn't yet entering that space specifically. Mm. Um, we had these devices and, and this laptop um, that were our norm. Right. That was you already, how we you already had so the technology. You already had the tech. You had the power. Yeah. I mean, this Turning Green started pre-Facebook, so I'll, I'll put that there. It was sort of at the cusp of social media, but technology. Yeah. There. The internet was there, and we were able to find a way to use those tools to our advantage. And I think that it has woken up a generation who can no longer ignore the consequences of our action, who can no longer turn a blind eye, because it's quite literally there with us every single day in our faces, in our hands. And it might not be right outside our door, but we have no choice but to face it. So I'm happy to see that so many young people, I am, that's what gives me hope. That's why I work with students. That's why I go to campuses. That's why I was really proud to stand there at the March for Our Lives and listen to kids that are 15 years younger than yeah. I am 
yeah. standing. It's moving. It really, really is. And you know that they're coming from it with a certain gumption and a sincerity mm. and, a, and, a, and a truth that I had too. You know, you're, you're young. Um, thank goodness that they don't know what it means to take on a multi-billion dollar industry. I didn't know what it meant to take on the beauty industry at that moment. But that's this beauty and the naivete of youth. And yeah. so too yeah. is a, a, a real, true, genuine belief that you can shift the paradigm. And shifting that paradigm, I like what you said about not knowing that you're taking on a multi-billion dollar yeah. industry. What's the pushback? Have you gotten pushback from young people? And we're going to get to some other highlights in your career as well in a minute which, you know, I love saying your career to somebody who's 27 years old. It's awesome. Thanks, uh, I, Josh. I didn't have a career when I was 27 years old. I didn't have a clue, but you do. And and so what's the pushback? Is the pushback from, has it been from people in your own generation? Have you seen that? <laughs> online? You get and, and the pushback is anyone and everyone. And I'm sure that you can relate and, and every single human can relate that people will call you out, bully you, threaten you, discriminate against you, shut you out for yeah. any or no reason at all. Um, yes, you're yeah. too young, you don't know anything, get some experience, you don't have the qualifications, you don't belong in this room, you know, oh sweetie, oh honey, oh darling, go learn the facts. I remember when I was your age, oh how sweet. And so you just gotta show up that much more prepared, that much more articulate. The first meetings that we had were with scientists because we recognized from the get-go that if we actually wanted to have a chance at affecting policy change, if we actually wanted to create a movement that would shift the practices of corporations, we had to have that sound science and that sound backing on our side. And so to this day, now you're doing nonprofit work there, uh, do you get pushback online? Do you get hate mail? Do you get flames? Oof. Yes, I do. You do? Um, I've gone through yes. most of my life pretty, um, listen, there are people more famous than I am. There are people more influential than I am. There are people more outspoken than I am. I found myself, um, I guess, in the wrong place at the wrong time, something of a digital crosshairs um, based on a very simple fact that came out in an article, um, which is that my mother's Jewish and therefore I'm Jewish. Um, and that was the first time that I really felt the hate speech and the death threats roll in by the tens of thousands. Um, and I, it was startling to me um, to think that that sort of discrimination, anti-Semitism, bigotry, call it what you will, was so prevalent. Um, it hit me on the beginning of June of 2016. And I literally woke up looking at images of me with a yellow Jude star, me in Auschwitz, um, Come comments. I mean, the FBI got involved. It's one of these things that you can't even fathom the degree to which people can find it in themselves to hate. If they put one iota of the energy mm. that so many do into negativity and to hate mm. into building and creating and understanding, our world would be a completely mm. different place. Yeah. But they're like ourselves. And it's on the basis of faith. You get it all the time. Um, I get it all the time as a woman. Wow. I identify as a woman, and that is something which some people find to be inherently problematic. And you get the slurs, and you get the comments about why you got that far, why mm. you got that position, why you got that job, insinuating mm. things that I've done 
in my life. It's, it's, it's disgusting, but I think I'm not afraid to call it out. Um, mm -hmm. What do bullies and bigots want you to do? Recoil, silence yourself. Mm -hmm. And when you speak out, you find, and this isn't trite, really, the power of love and the power of community and people coming together and say, listen, I might not agree with any of your political views. Listen, I have a completely different trajectory in life. Listen, you and I probably never would have or will cross paths again, but I'm just here to tell you that that's wrong and that humanity is inherently good. Well, I, I love your turnaround. I love that you are so strong and so resilient in spite of having uh, weathered that kind of uh, unimaginable and, and frankly, you know, unexcusable, uh, you know, behavior from people. It's interesting that we live in this time where there are trajectories like yours and like so many young people who are working very hard to make the world yes. a more accepting, more transparent, more loving, more understanding place. We have, uh, you know, an administration, which many people would argue represents many of the opposites. And to some degree, I believe, has given permission to some of that behavior that you've been of the impact of. Now, if you don't outright condemn that sort of pure evil, at yeah. every given opportunity, then it's effectively condoning it. I'm with yeah. you. Yeah, yeah, you give permission to it. So, okay, that's the downside. But wouldn't, riddle me this, okay? You can disagree or disagree, but I'm gonna say something and, and, and I want you to comment on it. Hasn't the election of Donald Trump catalyzed and galvanized and coalesced the millennial movement, the millennial awakening, in a way that probably wouldn't have happened had he not become president. Yes, I believe <laughs> that is the truth. <laughs> no, I think that is the truth, but I will call it a, a, a twisted positive legacy. I refuse to find that silver lining because I think leading up to the election of Trump, so many people said it won't really be that bad. And it's good that people are woke. It won't really be as dangerous as we think, but thank goodness people are rising up. And what we saw, I actually wrote for some newspaper a prediction of the first 100 days and the editor wrote back, Aaron, that's a pretty bleak vision. I said, yeah, I think we're headed for really dire times. Mm. And honestly, I fine. I benefit from white privilege. I have a roof over my head. I carry a United States passport. There's so many things that make it such that I am okay, even given the context of this administration, but too many people's feet are to the fire. Whether you want to call it emotional, physical, spiritual, you name it. And, and I don't think that that's a cost that anyone should be willing to pay, even if it means waking up. But am I glad to see that activism, which is how I first and foremost identify as an activist, has become a part of people's daily lives, that it's not something divorced from your natural 24 seven routine that we realize that we have to speak up and, and stand up and rise up and unite every single day. Yeah, because it's shiny object tactics, right? It's over here and over here and we're just overwhelmed. Um, but I really hope that people stay the course and that you don't get mm this spike in activism or proactivity, and then people burn out. Um, yeah. I, I yeah. like to say, you know, the business of world changing is long and it's messy. 
And if we want to accomplish the change, which I know you do and I do, and so many of us in this movement do, then we've just set ourselves up for success. So I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by the movement and the energy. I'm incredibly grateful for the number of people choosing policy and looking towards legislation and government as a viable path, one of many, but not forgotten. Because ultimately it's, it's slow, it's antiquated, it's broken, but it's what runs our country. So, so that brings me to the next point. You ran for office not that long ago. I did. And, and, and it was a pretty sparky move on your part uh, and a pretty yeah. exciting kind of race. And uh, I think the result is important, not because uh, you necessarily, you know, capitulated yourself into, uh, you know, the role of president of the United States or something, but because of what you did, because of what you learned, because of where you are now. Tell me about what you did Tell me about the office you ran for and tell me yeah. the big takeaway, your big lesson. What did you take away from that in your life? So I, I think you said it when you posted that we were doing this Facebook Live. I've said it again. I will say it forever, regardless of what path I take. I'm not a politician. That is not how I self-identify. Mm -hmm. um, I am an activist. And while I was involved in advocacy and legislation, I never thought that I would run for office. I gave a speech about the impact of place on my life, on my values, on my professional identity. I think all of us, more so than we even realize, are so fundamentally shaped by where we grew up, by our physical surroundings, and also by the social environment and landscape. Um, I walked off stage and people said, how do we get you to run for office? And I laughed in their face. This was in March of 2016, so about two and a half years ago. And I said, I don't fit the mold of what I thought of what I think of as a politician. Um, I'm a woman. I was 24 years old. I never held elected office. I hadn't spent decades in corporate boardrooms or law offices or government. You could rattle them off. Um, and people said, that's exactly why you have to run. And you need to do it now here in our district, which is California's second. So, I'm, I, so I, want I, pause, I want to pause you yeah. for a second. Was your yeah. first thought, seriously, I don't fit the mold because I'm a woman? Was that was that a, a disempowering context you had? Yeah. That was that doesn't when I like having having known you, that doesn't seem like the Aaron. I it just doesn't occur to me that that would but it's so thank you for your vulnerability because you're being honest. You had that thought. I didn't. I think it sounds trite, but you can't be what you can't see. And and as much as I'm into breaking molds and ruffling feathers and shattering broken status quo you don't see that many women in politics. At that moment, 18.4% um, of Congress, yet, I like that, yet, particularly in our country, particularly here in the United States of America. Um, and I, I was questioning what I was hearing, and I, I hope everybody has best friends who check them, you know, smack their ego down to size and can be that sounding board. Yeah. Um, and I called them and everybody said, you, you need to do this. Um, my, my best friend said something really interesting. She said, sure, you could wait, but why not run while you wait? And those words have stuck in my head forever about the difference between moral authority and formal authority. 
that we so often dub somebody ready. You are next in line for CEO, for politician, for leader, you name it. As opposed to those people earning the respect and the moral authority where in the community pushes them up and elevates them to that position. And um, I, my mom, she said, why would anybody vote for you with 70 days till the primary election with no money in the bank and no name recognition? And I said, thanks mama. <laughs> um, but I then needed to outline what it looked for me. Why was I running? So mm. I wrote an open letter to the world um, about why on earth a 24 year old would have the most remote desire to run. And listen, the political landscape two years ago wasn't that much prettier than it is now. And I sat in my bed at 11 a.m. on a Tuesday morning, the end of March, and I put this out to the world, not having any clue how people would respond, but being very confident that I knew why I was running. And it was a very simple proposition. It was to redefine civic engagement, to reinvigorate a culture of public service, and to expand the definition of who can be a politician, largely for what you just asked me about, that I myself didn't see myself as able to take on that role. Um, and the world responded in a really beautiful way. The resonance of that messaging that was also backed by policy. Listen, at that point, I'd been working in policy and advocacy and legislation for 11 years, albeit not professionally within government, but our pillars were around environmental and public health and learning in the future of work and human rights and, and technology. And these are issues incredibly relevant to my generation that will be disproportionately affected by the decisions being made today, yet has not just low representation, no representation in federal government by and large. And when 35% of the population of this country is under age 30, we may elect our first person ever under the age 30 to the House of Representatives yes. this midterm election. And, and what's interesting is, because I want you to finish your story, but I assume you're talking about no. Alexandria, you're talking about Alexandria Ortiz, I assume, right? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, in so many ways, every win that is happening is the culmination of so many other people, you know, getting out there and, and you know, doing what they do. And, you know, in, in the ripple effect or the butterfly effect of the universe, you know, the success that Alexandria is seeing in many ways is built upon the road which you helped to lay. I mean, you weren't the only person. There are many people laying bricks, right? But it's like yeah, all I, those bricks lead to that road, right? I appreciate, I appreciate that. I think that's, that's you know, overly generous. But, but listen, I was able to do what I was able to do because of the giants upon whose shoulders I stand. And go. everybody yeah. takes it that much further. And that day of her victory, I got countless messages about the impact of that on them, but also that our campaign was one of the first times they saw someone who looked like them, who spoke like them, who remotely understood what it was like to be them yeah. running. And and yeah. he went through this, this election process as so many candidates are now making that very act of running mean something. To be able to change the conversation among constituents and start micro movements. Listen, my district is up and down the coast of California. It is a magnificent 
place with a lot of people that are very proactive, but to really delve into the depths of these issues, to listen and to co-create. Yeah. And a 24 year old yeah. running for office made headlines. So, you know, Glamour Magazine, I'm their target audience, wrote an article about our campaign and they devoted a paragraph to soil health. Josh, they wrote about dirt. There you have, and there you have. Our hearts that we were able to change the conversation in the media um, and force the incumbent and the other candidates to take on these issues, to talk about underrepresentation, to open digital channels of communication. Hmm. Um, and listen, I was in it to win it. I actually wanted to implement the policies about which I spoke. And I think that became increasingly clear to people as they heard me on the campaign trail and then this, the serious nature in which I approached it. Um, they said, if you get 2,000 votes, bravo, 5,000, good job, 10,000, you won't do it. Um, on election day, we got 21,000 votes Great. in Great. seven it's amazing. Um, I'm proud. Days. So yeah, I mean, it is, and it was a team effort. And and you asked me, what's the takeaway? And I'll keep it short because I can rather on um, purpose, not position. Uh, that was my largest takeaway. In that, I am steadfast in my purpose. I always have been, and I'm constantly reassessing and and tweaking and redefining. But I know my true north, and I know my values, and I know what I stand for, yeah. and. The position is not Congress, at least not right now, but it's a circuitous journey where you can take many different approaches to accomplish that mission, that purpose. It's beautiful. I, I find your story so inspiring. Now, you know, you skipped over one little facet. You you got the votes. You didn't win. No, that's what I said. We lost. You lost. I wanted to win. I was in a tournament. Oh, we lost. We came lost. up six point six points short of advancing the primary election. And we right. lost. Yeah. 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 Which, you know, in the future, we will have things like ranked choice voting and, you know, these other biometric voting from your phone, some of the other innovations we talk about in the revolution generation. And, and people like you will have a much better shot. But right now, you're up against the system you're up against. So you, you had this epiphany, purpose, not position. And here you are living your purpose. You're doing something else important. But here's my question for you. When are you running again? <laughs> I have so many people ask me that. Um, I Listen, I never did something where I felt more people coalesce with such an urgency and come together. And I was so honestly proud of that. Yeah. Um, I don't know when, to be completely honest with you. And I also don't know for exactly what. And I think that that's a very healthy dialogue to have because anyone who tells you exactly what they're gonna run for and when they're going to run isn't actually responding to need. Um, and there's so many different positions in government at all levels from school board and supervisor to mayor and Congress and ultimately, yes, the, the, the presidency that matter. Um, yep. But when you see such a fractured, antiquated, stagnant political system, you also start to go back to basics. And local governments are the building blocks of our nation. That's why I'm here. I'm here in Puerto Rico for many reasons, but one of them is that 3.4 million American citizens who live in Puerto Rico are basically forgotten. So you want to talk about representation? Yes, you can look in your own backyard. They're marginalized populations. They're people that are excluded in any number of ways. But this is an entire island of people who hold a United States passport who don't get the same treatment from the federal government, either by law or by happenstance. 
Yeah, and and what's what's interesting about uh, resource-rich places like Puerto Rico when it comes to our interaction as a country, uh, we tend to be very imperialist as a nation. We tend to extract resources, and we don't necessarily leave behind a lot of humanitarian uh, help. But what's interesting about Puerto Rico is is this bizarre dichotomy that's happening now. It's become a Bitcoin haven. And so yes. you have all of these Bitcoin billionaires coming to Puerto Rico. I think we should do a call out and a shout out to the Bitcoin community. How can people who have recent wealth and a lot of it, who are coming back and forth to Puerto Rico, obviously they, obviously they enjoy it there. How can they help the baseline efforts to raise you know, the, the kind of standard of living and kind of real issues that you're dealing with there. What can people yeah. do, to, including the Bitcoin billionaire? Okay. By the way, if you are a Bitcoin billionaire and you're listening to this, pay very close attention to what Aaron is about to say. The very first thing is shut up and listen. And I hope that's what anyone and everyone does when they enter into a new circumstance where they are coming into someone else's island, to someone else's hometown, to someone else's realm of expertise, to someone else's culture, country, life. Because the fact of the matter is, life in Puerto Rico did not begin after Hurricane Maria. Life in Puerto Rico did not begin when the tax incentives for foreigners to come and live here in Puerto Rico were implemented. This island has an incredibly complex, multifaceted history that goes back before the United States had anything to do with it, before Spain had anything to do with it, and to come in and decide that you are going to help someone, even that you are going to serve. Serve whom? Help what? And this whole idea of an us versus them mentality is as old as time. But you're seeing it play out here in Puerto Rico like you've seen it play out all over the world throughout history. So yes, resources are valuable. Yes, capital is needed and spurring local entrepreneurship and technical assistance and skills training and employment are things that this island, like so many places around the world, do need. But it can't be done in a colonial way, in an imperial way, in an imposition, even sometimes with the best of intentions, that people come in with their own ideas and their own systems. They think, I'm going to help. And that's inherently problematic. Um, I don't, uh, yes, the irony is not lost on me that I'm a gringa living here in Puerto Rico saying this. Um, but I was very proudly the only gringa on an entirely Puerto Rican team from the beginning. Um, when we started working in sustainable agriculture after the peak of the emergency feeding operation began to wane, I gathered 89 farmers together with chefs and restaurateurs. I said, listen, I don't know what agriculture looked like here on the island years ago. I don't know what it was looking like six months ago. I don't know what it looks like now right after Maria, and I don't know what your vision is. But I want to learn. I want to hear, and I want to figure out where I can play a role to meet a need. And I think that has to be the root of all of the questions we ask in service and relief and recovery and activism is to ensure that we're meeting a need that's been expressed by people who are living that reality. Thank you, Aaron. Very so that's my word to the Bitcoin crypto. Hey, I got, I got yeah, it's great. Shut up and listen and then put your money where your mouth is with locals, driven by locals to meet local need. 
Awesome. Where are we going to see you next? Where is the next, you know, am I going to be interviewing you in, in Kenya or in, you know, I just don't know. What are you going to do next? How do you top your, your list of stuff that you've done? It's a really good question. And people always say that, um, or you hear about some event in the world, Aaron, are you going? I want to come. Uh, no, just hold tight. Um, there's a, I'll tell you a short story and I'll answer your question. Um, my knee-jerk reaction in the face of injustice is to show up, is to do. It's not always the best one. Um, when I was 18 years old, the earthquake happened in Haiti and I felt something inside me snap. And I bought a plane ticket to go to the Dominican Republic that night. Um, I was going to, you don't know this, I had no nefarious intentions, but I was gonna travel to the DR, cross a highly contested border into one of the poorest countries in the Western hemisphere after one of the worst natural disasters in modern history, knowing no one, sticking out like a sore thumb and not speaking the language. That um, sounds like a and, great plan to me. That is right? phenomenal. But listen, phenomenal course I wanted to help. given the circumstances. I, right, I wanted to help. Um, I called my mom, I said, hey mama, I, I just wanna let you know I'm going to Haiti. She said, I was expecting this call. Um, she said, I don't agree, I don't think it's smart, but you're 18 years old, make your own choices. She was at an event with friends. They started calling me. You're going to get raped. You're going to get kidnapped. You're going to get killed. And fear wasn't entering into that equation in any sort of paralyzing way. However, a friend then called and said, listen, Aaron, I had the same idea. I wanted to serve. But any food you eat is their food. Any water you drink is their water. Any shelter you take up means someone's sleeping without it tonight. And God forbid, cover of the New York Times, you're the first one on the operating table and you're the one medevaced out. Yeah. Yeah. That hit me. Um, it changed the entire way that I approach aid and service and volunteerism and activism, you name it, because it has to be driven by need and you have to also take care of yourself so that you can further serve others. And that, that knee-jerk reaction to respond is not always the best one. So I don't know exactly where it's going. And I, I'm sure that I will be compelled. I am an inherently um, proactive person and I have developed a, a path wherein I can show up, whether that's on the streets of New York City in solidarity with my black brothers and sisters who are being gunned down when that was my hometown and Eric Garner was strangled to death, or whether that's being able to go to Standing Rock and, and tell the story of mothers and women they're on the front lines fighting against hundreds of years of compounding oppression of, of, of land seizure and then climate battles and police brutality and you name it. Um, so I, I, I think that the universe presents us with so many opportunities and it's up to us if we're brave enough to say yes, but then to approach it from a thoughtful, mindful way wherein we're not actually proving more of a burden. Um, but the activist yeah. blood pumps very fiercely through me. Um, but so too does the systemic change angle, which is why politics is so interesting, which is why advocacy and policy matter so much. Um, I'm learning a lot here and, and I'm, I'm staying the course. Uh, I think there's an incredible opportunity in Puerto Rico, uh, particularly around sustainable agriculture and local food systems, which is what I'm fiercely passionate about. Um, but also to recognize we're only as good as how much better we respond in the next disaster in this work that I'm doing here. So putting in place systems that actually go forth 
that's that's real impact. That's legacy. When you can step away from something and it goes on to to meet its goals and to serve. Beautiful. We're gonna close Beautiful. it out. We're gonna close it out. And one more set one more one question more, for you, Aaron. One more question. We are are two months away from the midterm elections. Midterm elections. Probably some young people. Probably some young people right now. Right now. What's your advice for young people running for office? My advice to young people running for office. Oh, it's so complex. I, I, I'll start with what I said before, purpose, not position. I want to know why you're doing it. Why are you running? Why are you running now? Why are you running for the position that you are? Why are you running in the place that you are? And what burns inside you to drive that? There has to be something deeper. For me, I, I'm pretty passionate. I don't know if, 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 you, can, if you can see that, but um, passion, impact, and service. And I would challenge young people. My advice would be to challenge yourself to go one layer deeper than anyone else is even gonna challenge you. Because if you understand why you do what you do, and you're in it for the right reasons and for justice and to co-create a healthy, just, safe, thriving, beautiful future for people and planet, locally and globally, then that'll shine through and you'll stay the course. So my advice is to challenge yourself about why you do what you do and come up with an answer. And if you know it, that's all that matters. And, and I'll support you. And I'll support you even if I disagree with you because it means you'll come to the table and you'll engage and you'll have those dialogues rooted in truth and rooted in purpose. It's great, Aaron. It's our Aaron, revolution. Aaron Schrody, everyone. Aaron Schrody, everyone. Great. I assume people can follow you on Instagram. All the things. You will see where I am, what I'm doing, the plant-based food that I'm eating, who inspires me, quotes I love. Um, and the journey uh, of an activist living day to day in this mad world. Erin Schrode, E-R-I-N-S-C-H-R-O-D-E on all the social medias. Or come visit, Puerto Rico's open for business for you to come and to learn and to see and to, to dive in. But you don't just have to come here. You can literally start making change in your backyard. Erin, thank you. I look Aaron, forward thank to you. I look thank forward you. hopefully sometime hopefully on the Rebels. sometime on the college tour. College tour. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find you. It matters. You're doing amazing work, um, and for for the the people and the populations that matter most. Yeah, we're we're doing it together. Yeah, we're, we're doing it together. Wonderful, wonderful. Can't wait to speak to you again in the near future. Can't wait to speak again in the near future. Yes. Respect. Thank you. Take care. Peace out. Take care. Peace out.